are the confessions of American Christians recovering from American Christianity. This is the world we made. Welcome to The World We Made. I'm here with Pastor Jacob Menzel. And I'm here with Nathan Alberson. That's me. The World We Made was designed to help you think through the difficult things that you have to think through as a Christian in this modern day and age. For the next several weeks, we'll be discussing homosexuality. Specifically, we'll be talking about how we as Christians should love homosexuals. We'll be talking about what the Bible says about homosexuality. Where the culture gets it wrong. Where the church has gotten it right or wrong. And what we can do as Christians from a big picture perspective, but also much more than that, how we can love actual real human beings we know who are tempted to give themselves over to various lusts, including you yourself, that happens to be you. We're not going to lie to you. A lot of this discussion is going to be sensitive. It's going to be intense. Probably by nature of the issue, it'll be PG-13 at times. I think if you listen to this with your five-year-old in the room, most everything will probably sail past his head. But on the other hand, I don't want to say we didn't warn you, so please don't say we didn't warn you. Parental discretion is advised. So, it's hard to love homosexuals. But Jake, you're a pastor. Don't you have all the answers? Yeah, actually, what happens is the, the instant you're ordained, the clouds part, and a scroll comes down from heaven on a beam of light, and it has all of the answers for every possible situation you could ever think of or encounter as a pastor. It's amazing. Wow! Really? Uh, no. No, it doesn't work that way. We have the Bible, and the Bible is clear, and it is sort of the closest thing we have to a scroll that's come down to us from heaven. But the reality is, it's a lot harder to minister to real people in real life. And some of that's because not everything is alike clear in scripture. The rest of it is because it's just hard to love people. It's hard to want to love people. It's hard to want to see and understand the difficulties that they face with their various temptations. And homosexuality happens to be one of those temptations that's multifaceted. And requires some real pastoral insight as you dive into it and work with people who are tempted that way. So that there is a sense then in which there's no easy answers, but a lot of people when they say there's no easy answers, what they really mean is that there's just no answers, period. And in this case, I say if there's no easy answers, let's man up and find the hard ones. Which of course is what this show's all about. And we have three things helping us out. Go on. Well, one, we have the Bible, which is God's inspired word. It is an infallible rule of faith and practice, not just what we believe, but how we're to live. So we have that, and it does contain all the answers that we need to help people and to love people. Second, we have the Holy Spirit, who God gives us to open our, our minds and hearts to see His truth, to understand it, and to understand ourselves. And then lastly, we have the wisdom and counsel of, in this case, a godly pastor who's gone before us. Okay, great. Yeah, we get it, Jake. You're awesome. Whatever. Actually, I was talking about Pastor Tim Bailey. Oh. Tim has been a pastor for over 30 years now. For most of his adult life, he's worked intimately with men and women who have struggled with homosexuality. Tim is the senior pastor of Clear Note Church in Bloomington, Indiana. Which, if you don't know Bloomington, it's, it's the gay mecca of the Midwest. On the website advocate.com, it's ranked fourth on their list of gay-friendly cities. Says the website, quote, This forward-thinking college town is a magnet city for gays in the grain belt, unquote. 
Bloomington is, of course, home to Indiana University, which is home to the Kinsey Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction. So not only is it a liberal progressive town, it actually helped invent liberal progressive towns. Advocate.com describes Bloomington as very, and again, I quote, heteroflexible. So all that to say, that's the community that Pastor Tim has been ministering to for over 20 years now. He has a lot of stories, he has a lot of experience, and a lot of wisdom for ministering to homosexuals and standing against that particular sin. And he's the primary person we're going to be hearing from over the next few weeks. And Nathan and I will be providing commentary along the way. Who's Nathan and I? Jake was a college pastor for many years. He ministered to the students of Heteroflexible IU. Now he's discipleship pastor of Clearnote Church in beautiful Heteroflexible Bloomington. He is also co-founder and executive director of Warhorn Media. I am the other co-founder and creative director of Warhorn Media. The perfect person, clearly, to play the everyman in our little weekly drama of the human soul. So that's who we are, and that's what the show is. Nathan, where do we start? Jake, I'm glad you asked. We start in the past. Pastor Tim is a baby boomer. He was born in the early 50s. He's seen the world change quite a bit. And today we're going to begin to talk about the world that he came out of, what the perceptions of homosexuality were at the time, what the realities were as Tim experienced them personally. We're starting there because basically that's where Tim started when we interviewed him. Actually, when Tim first came into the uh, beautiful Warhorn Studios, he didn't know what we were going to be talking about. All right, what do you want? All right. I want to talk about homosexuality. <laughs> oh, homosexuality. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, you want me to tell the story of my male prostitute roommate in, in California? Sure. Seriously? Yes, seriously. You had a roommate who was a male is prostitute? This recording? Yes. It is. Oh. <laughs> that seem like as good a place to start as any? Keep in mind, Pastor Tim was only about 19 years old when this happened. That puts us in the early 70s. Yeah, I went out to California to work for youth specialties. They were the guys that started the youth worker conventions, and they had a satirical Christian magazine called The Wittenberg Door. Wittenberg was misspelled, and they kept it that way. It was a mistake. The first issue, a bunch of old uh, Youth for Christ and Campus Crusade workers started it. I lived with my aunt for a few weeks in a trailer court out in El Cajon. And I needed a roommate, and so I used a roommate-finding service. And they'd ask you a bunch of questions to see your compatibility was, and then they'd match you to somebody. So they matched me to a guy. I don't remember where he lived. We were maybe in La Mesa. And I moved in, and he seemed a little weird when I moved in. He was, like, really, like, buff, but real short, and he had this disgusting Cocker Spaniel that he carried around. Tim's opinions regarding Cocker Spaniels are his own. And also mine. But he was like the racquetball champion of San Diego County or something. So it's just weird. Anyhow, after I'd been there a couple of days, one night I was sitting in the living room. And I was surprised that he wasn't a Christian. There didn't seem to be anything that was compatible with me. I mean, no interest. I wanted to garden. He was like a neat freak. I... Anyhow, one night he came in with a man, and they went in the bedroom, and I thought that was strange. And then after they were in the bedroom, he said goodbye to the man. It seemed to me like there was some sort of financial transaction. He announced to me that he was a male masseuse. Well, I hadn't known that he was a masseuse, and so I kind of had an idea that since a man went in the bedroom with him, this was something that I wasn't aware of, you know? And then he proceeded to tell me what he did to men, and, and I specifically remember him being very proud about... Tim went on to describe exactly what the guy did. 
and we could share it with you, but we decided not to. It's not because we think that there's not a time and place to talk about those things. However, the time and place was between the three of us in that room and is not during this podcast. Anyway, Tim told us something so disgusting, but he described to me with me from the Midwest trying to get my mind around the words I was hearing about what he had men do to him and it's the kind of thing you still don't read anywhere. That was sort of my first real eye-opening experience. Now that was 1972 or thereabouts. The American Psychiatric Association had homosexuality listed as a psychiatric disorder until a year after that in 1973. The Stonewall Riots in Manhattan, which was kind of like the Boston Tea Party or maybe the Boston Massacre of the Gay Revolution, had happened three years before in 1969. Go back just seven years before that to 1962, and every one of the United States had felony laws against sodomy. And I mean consensual adult sodomy. That's within Tim's lifetime, and Tim is not, you know, Methuselah. Just one year before that, in 1961, a little gem of a movie came out. That looks innocent enough, doesn't it? Lots of young people hitchhike. Seems like a good way to get from one place to another. But sometimes there are dangers involved that never meet the eye. That's from Boys Beware, one of those black and white social guidance PSA short films that came out for, like, school children in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, this one is uh, kind of uh, intense. Yeah. It starts with the story of a boy named, of all things, Jimmy. Why is it always Jimmy or Timmy that gets in trouble in these kinds of stories? Anyway, as you can imagine, our boy Jimmy is a clean-cut, all-American boy, straight out of central casting. For all we know, he was straight out of central casting. Let's take the case of Jimmy Barnes. Jimmy played baseball all afternoon, and he didn't feel like walking home, so he decided to thumb a ride. The stranger is balding, with a pencil mustache and big, tacky, sleazy, skeezy California sunglasses. He has a face that basically screams, I'm a pervert. He'd done it a hundred times before, and he didn't think anything was unusual when the driver struck up a friendly conversation. In fact, he seemed like a real nice guy. He asked Jimmy if he played baseball in the park often. Jimmy told him they practiced three times a week and played a rival group on Friday afternoon. The stranger was a good listener, too, and it only seemed minutes before they pulled up in front of Jimmy's house. Then he told him he'd see him again, as he always drove by the park on his way home. We see footage of Jimmy and the sleazeball going to the movies, fishing together. Then during lunch, Ralph showed him some pornographic pictures. Jimmy knew he shouldn't be interested, but, well, he was curious. What Jimmy didn't know was that Ralph was sick, a sickness that was not visible like smallpox, but no less dangerous and contagious, a sickness of the mind. You see, Ralph was a homosexual, a person who demands an intimate relationship with members of their own sex. But by now, Jimmy felt a fondness for Ralph, and they continued to go places together. Ralph was generous and took Jimmy many interesting places and did many nice things for him. He bought presents and even gave him money, but payments were expected in return. Eventually, Jimmy reports Ralph to the police and the boys in blue book Ralph a much-deserved stay in the Gray Bar Hotel. Cut to a shot of some kids playing basketball. We pan to a creepy over-the-shoulder shot from behind of a man in a suit watching them. 
one of the kids, Mike, accepts a ride home from the creeper in the suit. The companionship, the praise, the friendly attitude dispelled any misgivings Mike might have had about going with a stranger. He probably never realized until too late that he was riding in the shadow of death. But sometime that evening, Mike Merrick traded his life for a newspaper headline. Boys Beware is only about 10 minutes long, but boy do they pack a lot in. In the second half, there's a shot of a kid, Bobby this time, fleeing from the dark silhouette of a deranged homosexual stalker. This shot, believe me, would do Alfred Hitchcock proud. Yeah, it's kind of sort of the Citizen Kane of Stranger Danger PSA films for kids in the 1950s and 60s. I bet it scarred some boys for life. Yeah, I bet it did. But having said that, I'm sure even back then there were lots of people that would not have taken this movie 100% seriously, that would not have considered it to be 100% representational of their views. But even so, we're talking about a world where this movie gets made and doesn't get laughed out of the schools or broadcast studios or whoever actually played those things. So that's one point of interest. The other is because of what Tim told us when Nathan asked him, given the male prostitute roommate, what prior experience he'd had with homosexuality. You hadn't had any experience with... Well, I had hitchhiked a lot, so I'd gotten picked up by men who were homosexual, but all those guys were always married, they always had wives and children, and while they tried to get you to have sex with them, they'd tell you they were married and had children as a way of trying to make you feel at ease with the fact that they were trying to get you to have sex with them. This was in the 60s, and they cruised, and they cruised by picking up hitchhikers who were young adolescent men, and I had hitchhiked a lot for my work because we lived out in the country and the only way I could get to work was to hitchhike. And I held down jobs and hitchhiked between Elgin and Wheaton and from Wheaton to Bartlett, Bartlett to Elgin. And at that time, it was the major way of homosexuals getting sex was to cruise. And, you know, of course, it was the rest stops, public restrooms and stuff, but I didn't frequent them. I hitchhiked, though. And, you know, the kind of people that picked you up were dopers, smoking joints, and homosexuals, basically. (laughs) I asked him how he responded to these solicitations. What was his understanding of homosexuality? How did he process it as a young man in his particular time and place? Which is to say, as a white, heterosexual, Christian male growing up in Wheaton, of all places, the mecca of white, heterosexual Christianity at the time. Well... I would say that at that time, adultery and homosexuality were equally shocking. There was something twisted about homosexuality that made it even more embarrassing and shameful, but adultery was very embarrassing and shameful. Fornication was no big deal. Remember, this is the late 60s, early 70s probably lived with that guy in San Diego. And by the way, I got out as quickly as I could. I don't know if I was there one week or two weeks. But homosexuality was not something that people talked about, but everybody knew it existed. And that's always the way it's been in history. It's been a shameful thing. You didn't talk about it, but everybody knew it existed. And you had a pretty good idea who wanted to posture themselves as as a woman, even though they were a man. And there were butch women, but you didn't talk about it. You also didn't talk about adultery. They were very, very shameful. 
And they weren't shameful in that you didn't know they existed and you didn't know the people, but they were shameful in that they were so contrary to God's law and so, so destructive. You know, you can imagine these men that would try to pick me up when I would hitchhike. Were they explicit about it in oh, asking yeah, for sexual yeah. favors? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were very, very explicit. No innuendo. They just asked for it. Well, I mean, do you really want me to say what they said? I think it might be interesting. I don't know. Well, you'd get in the car and all the roads I was hitchhiking on were 55, 65 mile an hour roads. They were state highways principally. Within a very short time of getting in the car, I don't remember the words, but somehow they'd proposition me. I'll tell you something. It happens, and, and it didn't just happen locally. I also hitchhiked down and back from Columbia Bible College when I went there. I hitchhiked out to uh, Boulder, Colorado, where my best one of my best friends was a number of times. I hitchhiked to the West Coast several times. I hitchhiked all over the country. And it was very different local than it was when you were on the interstate. But what would happen is they'd proposition you. Sometimes they'd have pornography that they'd ask you to look at. Sometimes they just reach into your lap. And so I got to the point where I always carried something with me. And I would put it in my lap as soon as I got in. And I also got to the point where I'd look at the man before I got in, trying to use my gaydar to figure out if he was gay or straight. Because the, the truth was, once you got up to 65 miles an hour or 70 miles an hour on an interstate, there wasn't a whole lot you could do. You, you know, you were between exits. You had to hitchhike on the exit. And what are you going to do? open the door and jump. And so you're stuck with the guy. And, and hitchhiking was awful. Uh, you know, as I look back at it, if, if it wasn't dope, it was hash, it was a homosexual, it was many, many of the guys were drinking while they were driving and drunk. I'm amazed that I am alive. Now listen up, we're not trying to say that Tim's story completely validates that corny old PSA about how the world is crawling with gay men who are all sleazy, suit-wearing, latent, or maybe not-so-latent serial murderers on the prowl. But I asked Tim next what those guys he met hitchhiking were looking for, and, well, I'll just play the clip for you. I think you'll see he got a kick out of the question. Were they predatory in nature, would you say, or were they looking for companionship how would you define what it was they were doing were they praying <laughs> they weren't looking for companionship <laughs> maybe that's a stupid uh, way to put it uh, were they looking for something consensual you know people like to act as if sexual perversions adultery homosexuality incest are somehow consensual and the fact is any violation of god's law is predatorial any violation of God's law sexually is predatorial. A man that looks at a woman who's naked on his laptop, he is a predatorial sex criminal because what he's doing is he is contributing to the destruction of another human being. And I, I, I feel so strongly about this. We, we act as if there are no consequences to our sexual immorality. And the courts and morgues and hospitals and the psyches of, of adult children of destruction in the homes they grew up, all this stuff, it's wreaked havoc in our world. And we have this habit of trying to separate it from consensual sexual acts that are non-predatorial, seeking intimacy, da 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 it's, just, it's absolutely a lie of Satan. And it's a lie that Christians have as much invested in trying to believe as any pagan. You know, when you don't discipline 
the fornication of the of the children of your children as a pastor and as elders okay that's predatorial it's it's your son your daughter praying on someone else and you might say well how can a daughter pray on someone else and i assure you women are predators not just men i believe that men have a greater responsibility to protect women than women have to protect men and I don't know quite how to think about that in terms of predator. Obviously, though, I was a I was a boy, and yeah, you know, I became an age of majority, and so you can say, well, you know, you're not really being taken advantage of. But you know, what would you call 65 miles an hour, and a guy reaches over and puts his hand in your lap? What are you going to do? Grab the wheel from him? You hear Tim talk about it that way. You know, all sin is predatory, and it seems extreme. And he does come from the same world that created this little Jimmy and Bobby better beware of marauding gay serial killers movie. So is Tim just being like old fashioned fire brimstone type thing? Maybe, but a better question is, is he wrong? And the answer is that when you think about it, there really is no such thing as a victimless crime. There's no such thing as a sin that doesn't affect other people. When you open the Bible to the very beginning, you see Adam sinning and Adam sinning affects the entire human race. And then that story is just repeated over and over again through Scripture, even with very seemingly private sins, like David committing adultery with Bathsheba. The entire nation of Israel was uprooted because of that. Achan steals a little bit of money and keeps it for himself, and the entire army of Israel is defeated. Over and over and over again, you see that kind of thing throughout Scripture, and it's not because God is being a petty tyrant. God's teaching us over and over and over again and showing us that sin has consequences. Our sins affect other people, even the most seemingly private sins. And so even when you sin with somebody in a way that you would say is consensual, we're both agreeing to sin together, you have a responsibility yourself to not sin, and you have a responsibility to that other person to protect them from sin. So you're still harming that other person, even if they're agreeing to sin with you. Now, admittedly, thinking through all this stuff is intense, and if you're not quite sure what to do with what Tim said at the end there, then in a sense, neither is he. Applying these difficult truths takes prayer, it takes work, it takes counsel, it takes thought, it takes a willingness to grow and learn and make mistakes. And it takes a willingness not to expect the whole truth from just one podcast episode, however great. But to tune in next week as we continue to open these things up. Yeah, we're going to be digging much, much deeper. There's obviously much more to talk about from what the Bible says to what we see in the church and culture to our own day-to-day experiences with our family and friends. As we said before, we'll be hearing lots more from Pastor Tim along with more of the patented wit and wisdom of Jake and myself. Until next week, you can subscribe to this podcast and rate it on iTunes, which is a big help to us. The World We Made was written by Nathan Alberson and produced and executive produced by Nathan Alberson and Jacob Menzel. You can find more great content at warhornmedia.com or follow us on social media under at warhornmedia.com.